If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of September 25, 2022. The podcast that flies the friendly skies. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's over-intellectualize the news of the bogus. So here's an article from The Verge on the recent controversy involving Cloudflare disconnecting services to Kiwi Farms. It's got an interesting term here, stochastic terrorism. And it says more platforms need to close the stochastic terrorism loophole. I'll give this article one thing. Like any good article should, right off the bat... With the first sentence, it lets you know what you're in for. Quote, Kiwi Farms is a nearly 10-year-old web form founded by a former administrator for the popular QAnon Wasteland 8chan that has become notorious for waging online harassment campaigns against LGBT people, women, and others. Gee, got anyone else you want to throw in there? Here's a hint. If it's a 10-year-old website... It couldn't have been founded by a former 8chan administrator because 8chan's only been around nine years. So anyway, the swatting of Carlos Sorrenti resulted in public pressure to shut down Kiwi Farms. Of course, the usual steps were skipped, actual evidence that the email was even from a user of Kiwi Farms, and even then how you get around Section 230 and blame Kiwi Farms for the action of a user. But apparently an online harassment campaign trumps proof. The article even quotes Alex Stamos saying, The investigation will show the killer's links to the site, and Cloudflare's enterprise base will evaporate. So even their own experts admit that it hasn't been shown yet. How he's somehow omniscient enough to know that it will is an open question. He certainly wasn't omniscient enough to know about all the security compromises going on while he was chief security officer of Facebook. Also seemingly missing is any public discussion of why police would conduct a SWAT raid based on a random email in the first place. Nah, the article just forgets all of that to show its own ignorance instead. It actually complains that, quote, It protected Kiwi Farms from distributed denial-of-service DDoS attacks, which can crash sites by overwhelming them with bot traffic. Again, these psychos at The Verge think that protecting people from hackers is a problem. But that's not the really ignorant part, quote. And third, as Alex Stamos points out here, it hid the identity of their web hosting company, preventing people from pressuring the hosting provider to take action against it. Uh, do you know anything about how the internet works? Cloudflare just caches the connection, but you can still tell who it is. Ever heard of a who is lookup? If you've done that, you could easily see that the domain is hosted by Epic.com. No, these are just excuses. The article then goes on to whine about free speech and how basic laws and principles are convenient to Cloudflare. And you know that point we keep making about how if you force people off legitimate channels, you'll just force them underground? The Verge thinks that's actually a good idea. Quote, Yes, Kiwi Farms could conceivably find other security providers, but there aren't that many of them, and Cloudflare's decision to stop services for the Daily Stormer and 8chan really did force both operations further underground and out of the mainstream. Yeah, but won't that make it more difficult for law enforcement to figure out who's doing this and stop them? 
I mean, it's just head-shaking when it says things like, And so its decision to continue protecting Kiwi Farms arguably made it complicit in whatever happened to poor Sereni and anyone else the mob might decide to target. So, guilt by association by association. How many degrees of separation from something do you need before you're actually innocent until proven guilty? We have someone who sent an email to cops making them swap Sereni. Instead of blaming the cops, who absolutely shouldn't have done that, and the lone person who sent the email, who may or may not have been a user of Kiwi Farms, let's say he was for the sake of the argument, they're blaming a website the user was a member of, and the hosting provider, and the CDN who cached the connections for the hosting provider. How far does it go? To ISPs who deliver the traffic to the end user? The people who make the computers and process the website's content for display? The people who make the monitors that display the website to the users? For another example of their cluelessness, quote, And while we're on the subject of complicity, it's notable that for all its claims about wanting to bring about an end to cyber attacks, Cloudflare provides security services to makers of cyber attack software. Well, yeah, because that's how you protect people. You make everyone secure, or you make it so no one is secure. There really isn't a middle ground here. But that's the danger that's involved when you think that there should be exceptions made for people you don't like. But like all claims of censorship, they only seem to imagine it being done to the other guys. Quote, One reason why this has been so effective is that it is a strategy designed to resist content moderation. It offers cover to the many social networks, web hosts, and infrastructure providers that are looking for reasons not to act. And so it has become a loophole that the far right can exploit, confident that so long as they don't explicitly call for murder, they will remain in the good graces of the platforms. Again, it's only going to be a matter of time before these exceptions they want are turned against them. And by the way, if anyone here has a problem with me attributing this to The Verge instead of just the article's author, Casey Newton, I would point out that there is a much stronger association between Newton and The Verge than there was between this swatter and Kiwi Farms. So how would you legitimately complain about that if you want both Kiwi Farms and Cloudflare to be held responsible for the swatting? If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you create at Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency, without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well.
Cloudflare may already be regretting taking another step kowtowing to the censorship mob. Now they're fighting orders to block the DNS of websites that copyright cartels don't like. The company has a policy of complying with court orders blocking the websites of its CDN customers, but blocking DNS lookups from its 1.1.1.1 resolver is going too far. In dozens of countries, governments have tried ordering ISPs to block pirate sites, and although Cloudflare is a U.S. company, they've been ordered to block pirate sites in Germany and Italy. When Cloudflare complies, they only block access to locations in the country the order comes from. They said in a recent transparency report, quote, If we determine that the order is valid and requires Cloudflare action, we may limit blocking of access to the content of those areas where it violates local law, a practice known as geoblocking. But those are blocks to the websites of Cloudflare customers. To Cloudflare, DNS lookups are a different thing entirely. Governments have been using ISPs to block DNS lookups because traditionally, people have used their ISP's DNS server to do lookups, since that's the default setup and most people don't realize that's going on anyway. But with the growth of DNS over HTTPS, a much overdue secure DNS lookup system, devices and browsers make it easy for users to select a secure DNS provider, such as Cloudflare, NextDNS, or Quad9. Not only are DNS lookups private, instead of happening in the clear as they were traditionally done, it's a vital step in protecting users against incredibly dangerous DNS poisoning attacks. But it also means getting around any DNS blocks the ISPs have put in place, because they're not using the ISP's DNS lookups anymore. So now they're targeting these companies. Germany ordered Quad9 to block a pirate site following a complaint from Sony. Italy ordered Cloudflare to block several pirate sites. Cloudflare's transparency report makes a distinction between blocking a website of its customers or even taking it down in the case of Kiwi Farms, since DNS blocks an entire domain over the entire world. Quote, Because such a block would apply globally to all users of the resolver, regardless of where they are located, it would affect end users outside of the blocking government's jurisdiction. We therefore evaluate any government requests or court orders to block content through a globally available public recursive resolver as requests or orders to block content globally. And even when Cloudflare loses in court, they seek alternative remedies that don't shut down the website globally. Quote, Given the broad extraterritorial effect, as well as the different global approaches to DNS-based blocking, Cloudflare has pursued legal remedies before complying with requests to block access to domains or content through the 1.1.1.1 public DNS resolver or identified alternate mechanisms to comply with relevant court orders. To date, Cloudflare has not blocked content through the 1.1.1.1 public DNS resolver. The report also states six things Cloudflare has never done. Quote, Cloudflare has never turned over our encryption or authentication keys or our customers' encryption or authentication keys to anyone. 2. Cloudflare has never installed any law enforcement software or equipment anywhere on our network. 3. Cloudflare has never provided any law enforcement organization a feed of our customers' content transiting our network. 4. Cloudflare has never modified customer support at the request of law enforcement or another third party. 5. Cloudflare has never modified the intended destination of DNS responses at the request of law enforcement or another third party. And 6. Cloudflare has never weakened, 
compromised, or subverted any of its encryption at the request of law enforcement or another third party. Here's hoping they keep this policy, but again, we've seen what a single exception can do. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government sensors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. No matter what, the goal of any war should be to end it. And that means when the tide of battle goes your way, the first thing you should do is reach out to the other side, ostensibly the losing side, to discuss the terms for doing so. And once again, that is exactly not what the U.S.-NATO side has been doing in the Russo-Ukrainian War. Diplomat Craig Murray in a recent blog post described it in a way that almost sounds inspired from Larkin Rose. Quote, let me give you a homespun analogy. I have this week been dealing with an incident where somebody feels their share of a limited income should be increased due to the amount of work they have put in. Others felt that the person was underestimating the amount of work they had also put in. It became quite a difficult discussion. Happily, in the end, a compromise has been reached that everyone can live with. At no stage did anybody turn to me and say, we should kill them, that will solve it. There may be differences of opinion within a village on whether a wind turbine should be built next to it. The matter will be resolved one way or another. Nobody suggests the answer is to smash anybody into a bloody pulp on the ground with bombs and automatic weapons fire. Yet when the question is whether that village ought to be in Ukraine or in Russia, inflicting horrible, painful death on those who disagree is seen not only as legitimate, but as heroic and noble. As I've pointed out before, one indication as to who has the moral high ground in a war, if anyone could ever have the moral high ground in a war, is who's the most willing to negotiate. And as Murray writes, Thankfully, diplomatic channels to Russia through Turkey remain open in the Ukraine war, as witnessed the recent prisoner exchanges. I am happy to see the British mercenaries back home safe in the UK not least because now we won't need to hear any more lies about how they were not mercenaries, but new Ukrainians who had permanently settled in Ukraine. But that's an issue when war propaganda meets reality. If it really is the case that Ukraine is kicking risky ass and these silly, incompetent Russians are fleeing in terror, then why haven't they even tried to discuss terms for a ceasefire? Quote, Western powers should have used the limited but real advances made by the Ukrainian military in the last fortnight to reach out to Putin at a point where he might have been persuaded to accept a deal based on the ceasefire lines as they existed in 2021. Instead, 
They have ramped up the Russophobia another notch and persuaded themselves that the total destruction of the Russian army can be achieved and Putin brought down by a color revolution. The grim response from Russia, with mass mobilization, is all too predictable. He also goes into how monkeying with search results doesn't help. Do a Google image search for swastikas on Ukrainian tanks, and you'll see a bunch of them with the letter Z, and articles debunking the claim that the Z is a Nazi symbol. What you won't see is any actual swastikas on Ukrainian tanks, which is what you asked for. Do the same search on Yandex.ru, and you actually do find Nazi flags and symbols. Quote, Crucially, the first two images top left on the Yandex search link to the German NTV station report that captured the swastika on the Ukrainian tank, which Max Blumenthal had tweeted about. That is what I was searching for to check on Max's facts. Google hides this. I have no doubt whatsoever that this is deliberate. It is also worth noting that while the Google results totally exclude any material about Nazi symbols used by Ukrainian troops in the current conflict, the Yandex.ru search does include images from pro-Ukrainian sites that claim to debunk these images, rightly or wrongly. In other words, while the Google search results are highly censored to exclude the Russian viewpoint, the Yandex results include pro-Ukrainian viewpoints and appear to be much more what you would expect on a random, uncensored internet search on the subject. Of course, most Americans won't do comparisons like that and will just listen to the news media where the only thing they'll hear about it is that Ukraine can't be a country of Nazis because Zelensky is of Jewish descent. All of the evidence for the extent of neo-Nazism among Azov notwithstanding. And really, how do people expect Putin to respond? Quote, Putin's reaction appears to be escalation. The conscription is a huge statement internally, which probably does make major military reverse not politically survivable, even for Putin. The proposed referenda in occupied districts also make any backtracking very problematic. And it really makes you wonder what people's goals really are. Quote, so what is the solution? Borders are not immutable. The borders of sovereign Ukraine only lasted 21 years before Russia annexed Crimea. A Ukrainian victory that retakes Crimea from Russia would involve a long war and a death toll rising into the millions. There really are, and remember I worked over 20 years in British Foreign Office, six of them in senior management structure, people in NATO and in all Western governments who have no problem with the notion of hundreds of thousands of dead people, particularly as they are nearly all Eastern Europeans or Central Asians. They are not even particularly perturbed by the risk the conflict could turn nuclear. They are delighted that the Russian armed forces are being degraded and vast sums pumped into Western military budgets. That is worth any number of dead Ukrainians to them. I do not believe the USA, UK, nor NATO has any political will for peace. This is a disaster. And it'll especially be a disaster for Ukraine. But, like that stupid monkey with a fistful of rice, it just refuses to simply let go and escape from the trap. Quote, There is a solution that leaves a free and now much more united Ukraine with the vast majority of the territory it has enjoyed in its very short current existence, and lets go some populations who determinedly do wish to be Russian. People need the courage to say so. If they can do so without being censored, that is. Thank you.
Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. <laughs> And now it's time to deperpetuate this week's biggest bogani emitter. And this week it goes to YouTube for more copyright idiocy. George Romero's classic Night of the Living Dead not only defined the zombie movie and introduced a lot of non-horror fans to the genre, due to a mishap it became in the public domain and can be legally copied and watched as often as people want. The film became public domain because, at the time, U.S. copyright law required a copyright notice to be attached to the film, and while distributor Walter Reed Organization did so under its original title, Night of the Flesh Eaters, they failed to file for a new copyright when the film changed its title, accidentally placing the film in the public domain. As a result, UHF stations, art house theaters, home media, and now websites from the Internet Archive to YouTube give the film a global audience it might never have achieved otherwise. As of August 2021, it's the Internet Archive's second most downloaded film with over 3.3 million downloads. So it was perfectly legal for a user who posted his experience in our copyright to use some footage from the movie in a short film. But after he uploaded it to YouTube, it quickly got flagged for copyright by YouTube's content ID system. He contested the copyright claim, but YouTube quickly rejected it. The content ID match was to a video called Night of the Living Dead Part 1, which was uploaded by one Jack Meekin. Meekin has only one YouTube subscriber, and the video, which has 31 minutes of audio from Night of the Living Dead, has a note saying the content was supplied directly to YouTube by InGrooves, a distribution label under Universal Music Group. So, who's Jack Meekin? Well, the music for Night of the Living Dead came from music libraries of WRS Studio and Capitol Records. Meekin was one of the composers. So is this Meekin claiming copyright over his own work? Can't be. He died in 1982. So Torn Freak decided to track it down. Quote, We found the Jack Meekin account on YouTube, hit play on the Night of the Living Dead video, fired up Shazam, and got a surprise instant hit. According to our digital fingerprinting overlords, the piece is called Chapter 1 by a recording artist called George Romero. Wonderful. And thanks for nothing. But they didn't give up. They looked on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, and other places. Eventually, they found Jack Meekin, the techno trance producer, who has several tracks to his name and is also credited on Apple Music and other platforms with the entire soundtrack to Night of the Living Dead, even though this Jack Meekin wasn't even alive in 1968 when the film came out. 
they reached out to Meekin, the alive one, and got no response. So, weirdly, the composer Jack Meekin appears to be a zombie himself, still spinning tracks 40 years after he died. How this happened, no one seems to know. Maybe it's originally a mistake made by an automated system that wrongly connected the two, but remember, there was a specific challenge to YouTube's Content ID match on a public domain movie, and they refused to shift on it. So, they're claiming the copyright on a dead man's public domain work, and taking the money even after it's been challenged. That just has to make YouTube this week's biggest bogan emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. Go to Firmoo, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmoo dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's weatherize this week's... Idiot California did a good thing in 1996 when the voters passed Proposition 215 and it became the first state in the country to legalize medical marijuana. Prop 64 then legalized recreational use in 2016. But, of course, California screwed it up royally, as a very thorough LA Times investigation has shown. Despite ostensibly being legal, there are still a lot of illegal grow operations all over rural California, as well as unlicensed dispensaries all over the place. This is because the state required stringent licensing requirements that, as always, has been fraught with political corruption and bribery, leaving legal marijuana to a very few political cronies. It doesn't help that, also typically, California has taxed the life out of it. As much as 60% of the retail price of legal marijuana is taxes. So licensed merchants are just a quarter of sales, meaning most Californians still get their chronic the old-fashioned way with all of the crime that comes with the black market. The big problem with the investigation is how the LA Times just doesn't seem to grasp basic economics. They seem to assume that all California needs to do is exert more control, when in fact their hideous levels of control is what's driving it. The real solution is to relax controls and turn black market operations over to free market players, massively reducing taxes and preventing state and local officials from determining who's allowed to grow and sell it. They're stuck in the old drug warrior mentality of the problem of drugs being a failure of enforcement, not policy. Prop 64 still allowed local governments to control or even ban cannabis businesses. Unlicensed dispensaries face raids and prosecutions. Licensed dispensaries have to pay out the wazoo. 
And that just leads to bribes and intimidation, including two officials who, last year, were convicted in federal court of taking bribes. One of them said that setting an artificial limit of 12 licenses was a mistake that created a competition for legal protection that led to corruption. But even when they do, they have trouble competing with the illegal operations that flood the market with cheap ganj. Even when California gets it right, they get it wrong. And even when they identify the problem, they call for the wrong solution. So all of that makes California this week's... Idiot Well, that wraps up this... One is born, one runs up bills, one dies, and what have I got to show for it? Nothing. A butler's uniform and a slightly effeminate hairdo. Edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to dundee.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Newton Lee. Human beings will never evolve to higher creatures if we are constantly restricted by rules and regulations. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now.